Genesis chapter, excuse me, I've got it, Genesis chapter 9, and we're going to be in the 6th verse. So Genesis 9 and the 6th verse is where we're going to be looking this morning. Now, last uh, week, there was a snow day, and it was Sanctity of Life Sunday, and even more so, uh, the context of what has recently happened, I believe the Lord will be pleased that we still park it right here. <laughs> so here we are, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. It says this, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For, for this cause or because, in the image of God made he man. He made man in the image of God. And I just want to speak this morning about everyone being made in the image of God and therefore the sacredness of human life. So let's just pray just for a minute. Father, we believe that we each have such a worth not because of anything that we've done, but because of who made us. And we ask that, Lord, you would help each one of us to realize the sacredness of life, not only, Lord, for others, but even for ourselves. And we pray that, Lord, you would help to preach this morning those truths that are both warning and encouragement. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll start with this question. Where does murder begin? Where does murder begin? Jesus tells us that it begins in the heart. I think that as we look in the Sermon on the Mount, we find that Jesus helps us to get to the core of what the law is. It wasn't that it never was that and all of a sudden Jesus made it that. It was that it always was that and Jesus just uncovered it more because it had been buried for years. So murder begins inside of the heart. And what's in the heart finds way of expression. Oftentimes, the great majority of us are probably not going to be guilty of outward murder. But the expression of that murder in the heart usually comes out of our mouth. And James speaks about that, biting and devouring one another with murdering words. He said, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. Every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude or the likeness of God. Right there we find men are made after the likeness of God and the image of God. And he's saying we're murdering others with our words. Sometimes... It gets to be to the point where it goes far past our words and a heinous act of actually ending one's life takes place. But it all started back there in the heart somewhere. So that can happen even when we get angry enough that we would get into a fight with somebody, intending to do harm to them, assaulting them. And then it can go to the place of really ending their lives altogether. So God, I want to tell you, is pro-life. And when we say pro-life, I'd like to take the idea of pro-life completely out of the political realm because they would steal that and make it a matter of politics. But in the sight of God, pro-life is not a matter of politics. It's foundational. 
its morality, its existence. We are made in the image of God. And it doesn't matter what people do. It doesn't matter what kind of laws are passed. There is no way in the sight of God that we can legalize an assault on his image. That means harming any single living soul. There is no way a government can legalize that in the sight of God. It's always wrong. That's why it's foundational. Hitler, we all know very much about. Hitler was an awful man. Hitler sanctioned the murder of 11 million people. We hear 6 million Jews, but he didn't just stop with Jewish people. He murdered others that were not Jews. 11 million, it's estimated. 11 million people, that's what he sanctioned. So we think of the Holocaust, and actually you can find that there's been interviews on the street with people, they ask who Hitler is, and they say, I don't know. I don't know who he is. And I was thinking, how in the world can you not know that except that people are purposefully trying to bury it and get it out of their mind? Don't want to don't want to think about those things. Don't want those to be retaught again. I don't know why. But some people believe that the Holocaust never happened. Even though there's so much evidence all over the place that this atrocity did take place, they say it didn't happen. After the war was over, the American armies made the people of Germany go and tour all those concentration camps. Now the people would literally see what caused all the smoke to billow in the skies that they had been seen coming up over cities or towns. They would now see what their elected leaders were doing. They'll see it with their sight. And if you look at video footage of them going into these camps, they all have smiles and they kind of have a spring in their step. They come out and they have handkerchiefs and their faces are buried in it. They're crying and it's because of what they saw inside there. Now, this was a brainwashing of all of Germany in the time of Hitler under a political guise. This was for the people. This is for the economy, right? This is for our good. Sounds awfully similar to our day right now, doesn't it? Hitler's real motive, however, is satanic. And you and I, and some people would say, no, he was just a bad man. No, that man gave himself over to Satan himself. He had a book that he had read about magic and he underlined, and it was a scholarly book, so to speak. Under, he underlined these phrases. Satan is the fertilizing, destroying, constructing warrior. And he who does not carry demonic seeds with him will never give birth to a new world. These are the things that Hitler's heart attached to and loved. He thought it was important enough for him to underline it. He had a motivation that was not just human, but diabolical. He tried to get all other people to hate Christianity. And he said, history will recognize our movement as the great battle for humanity's liberation, a liberation from the curse of Mount Sinai. God is a tyrant who orders one to do the very things one doesn't like. Sounds like somebody who's out for our welfare, huh? Not so. Let me just ask you a question. If you were in that time of Hitler, and I've got some of this from uh, Living Waters had done a, 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 a video or documentary about abortion. So some of these things he had asked people on the street, and I'll ask you the same question. If there were 
a pit dug before you in Nazi Germany. And there were hundreds of the bodies of living Jewish people down in there. And a Nazi soldier came to you with a rifle or a handgun. And he said, get inside the bulldozer and bury these people alive or I'm going to end your life right now. What would you do? The responses often are varied. We would think, I couldn't bury living people down there in the pit. Then the question is, why couldn't you do that? Because they're living human beings in there. I can't do that to somebody else's human being. Really, what we're getting to is at the core, you realize that there's a sacredness of life. I can't end someone's life like that. That would be atrocious. What did they do? It's unjust. There's a sacredness there. But then also, if the person says, I would, I just push them all in, you'd ask the question, why? Because they value their own life. Because they realize there's a sacredness of this life that they have. So no matter which way you look at it, people intrinsically understand that there's value in life. So the context of this verse that we're looking at is just after the great flood in Noah's time. Genesis 6, 5 said, God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. After this uh, great flood, Noah and his family get out of the ark. They step on the dry ground and now we start over. God says to them, be fruitful and multiply. That's what happened before we come to this verse that we had read in Genesis 9, verse 6. He tells Noah and his family, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. This was after God had made such widespread judgment over all the earth, and it's going to start over again now with Noah and his family. Noah... My image is stamped on every human soul. Let this not be forgotten. It's so serious that if you shed someone's blood, your blood shall be shed. That's the warning God tells them right after this catastrophic flood. So speaking about the sanctity of life, because we are created in God's image, people have an inherent and God-given dignity. No man Woman can take that away from any of us. So we look at the first thought in sanctity of life, the assault on the image of God. First, as is what has been in the news lately, abortion. That is one way and a very huge way in these particular days of the assault on the image of God. I'm reading this from a different version because it brings it into light a little better than the archaic form of the King James does. Though if you were to look through the King James and what they would understand words to mean at those times, it says the exact same thing. It says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. In other words, God knows when there is 
a being being formed in their mother's womb. He even knows before that conception ever took place, there's something in the heart of God and in the magnitude of his person that sees things in an altogether different light than you and I see it. And God sees there's life there already. And he had a purpose for that life that was being knit together in the womb. He's speaking to the prophet Jeremiah here. Now you would say, well, he was talking with Jeremiah. So does that mean that God doesn't see any soul that's knit inside of a womb? That doesn't make any sense. It's completely unreasonable. God sees every, every being that's being knit together in the womb. He sees that. And he tells Jeremiah, excuse me, that was to David, which I was reading in the Psalm. This is Jeremiah. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. I chose you for a purpose, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. If that was in this present day, Jeremiah the prophet could be killed before he was ever out of the womb. And then what would have happened to God's cause? Well, God superintends all things and keeps his people where he does, just like with Christ. They were after bloodshed for Christ, and the Lord still kept him alive. Some of the arguments that go forward towards this assault on the image of God and abortion, they say are dependent upon situations. What if, what if a lady's raped and then because of it, she's with child? Well, the facts are, or a question that you can ask yourself is, is that child responsible for the crime of the person who committed the rape? So is it okay then to kill that child, even though it wasn't the child's fault, because of some heinous act of another man? That's a question you have to answer. Another argument is, dependent upon situations, I can't support the baby after birth. Well, there is viable options for that too. Can you not give this child up for adoption then? Remarkably, this is a, uh, I can't, I, I'm lost for words right now. This company does surveys, Gutmacher reports that of the 38 respondents who were interviewed at length, more than one-third said they considered that they considered placing their baby for adoption, but concluded that it was a morally unconscionable option because giving one's child away is wrong. However, it's okay to murder a baby in the womb. The reasoning is completely out of this world. It doesn't make any sense. Another reason that some people say that it's okay to have this assault on the image of God through abortion is medical problems or birth defects. Well, they're not going to have a good quality of life. Well, if you take that then into later years, Ray Comfort was interviewing people on the street and he said, <clears throat> do you think it's okay? You know, say we saw like a 15 year old boy with Down syndrome, man, he's got a really hard time. He can hardly even function in society. Why don't we just get rid of the guy? Why don't, why don't we just, you know, we bring him to a, a medical place or whatever, and we inject him with a lethal dose. He, he won't feel anything. It won't hurt. But he's got such a terrible, you know, chance at life. We might as well just put him out of his misery. And people are saying, no, no, that's terrible. That's wrong. So why is it any different if they do an ultrasound in the womb and they find that there's some sort of Down syndrome or birth defect in there? Why is it okay to do it then but not later in life? Is, that, is it any less of a human life inside of the womb than it was when they're 15 years old? Hitler did the same thing. He killed those people with deformities, mental retardation, and Down syndrome. All I'm trying to do is, say, is show you that this is diabolical. It's not political. It comes from the pits of hell. So the question that you have to ask yourself, or the sentence that you must finish is, it's okay to kill a baby in the womb when fill in the blank. 
The thing is that people have changed the narrative so much so that they won't say that it's murder. And it is murder. Some people's argument about abortion is to say that it's not a baby until it's three months old. Listen to a quote from Hitler. The Jews are undoubtedly a race, but not human. They cannot be human in the sense of being an image of God. So Hitler recognized people that are up in their upper years in life. He said, undoubtedly, they're a race, but they're not human. They don't bear the image of God. Very easy to kill them off now, isn't it? There's no intrinsic value in this people. They're not even human. And that's what the argument for babies are in the womb. Well, they're not human yet. Not a baby until three months. The facts are, scientifically, that six weeks, six days, they have eyes. They have a heartbeat. There is a living being in there. I remember in our first pregnancy, my wife had a problem with some bleeding. We had to go and get an ultrasound, and it was at six weeks. The lady said, this is the size of a grain of rice, and they were already measuring the heartbeat, and you could see the heart beating with an ultrasound. No, that's not a life there. Don't worry about it. The statistics are that unborn babies killed in the American Holocaust, which we would call abortion, in the first 37 years after Roe versus Wade, that Supreme Court uh, ruling case, 53,310,843. That's how many children were murdered in the womb. 53,310,843 in America alone. We look at communist rules and tyrannical governments and 53 million are killed and things like that. And we say, oh, what an atrocity. But this somehow doesn't bother people. Florida, actual recorded abortions. This wasn't voluntary. Sometimes people do surveys and it's a voluntary effort. Sometimes, uh, well, this is more what had happened that was recorded at hospitals. They didn't have a say. It was just fact. So this is substantiated. Over 71,000 abortions recorded in Florida. And this is the substantiated evidence. 0.001% the pregnancy resulted from an incestuous relationship. 0.065% the woman's life was endangered by the pregnancy. 0.085% the woman was raped. 0.288%, the woman's physical health was threatened by the pregnancy. 0.294%, the woman's psychological health was threatened by the pregnancy. 0.666%, there was a serious fetal abnormality. 6.268%, the woman aborted for social or economic reasons. And 92.330% had no reason for why they had done it. So even the argument that people have towards incest, rape, medical, all this, it's all well below the percentage of anything that's even a viable reason. Most of the reasons that people have it is for selfishness. That's the reason. So we can just take that out of people's hands. As far as the legislation and this assault on the image of God going through abortion in our country and why that's been such a thrust and a push in it, not only is it diabolical, but what is the root of all evil, the Bible says. The love of money is the root of all evil. For a non-surgical abortion, like the morning after pill, 525 bucks. For surgical, up to 13 weeks, 450 13 and a half to 16 weeks, 765. And it goes up in a scale all the way to 19 and a half to 21 and a half weeks, $2,165 to do that. 
And now that New York State has passed this thing that just recently happened, all the way up until birth they can abort a baby, I have no idea what they charge for that. But they're raking money out of insurance companies because now they're making it legal for that to happen. God is not going to be mocked. We're not going to be without judgment in this land with something like this going on. So abortion's obviously a huge deal. I just want to say to you, it is not okay for us as Christians to be silent about it. God isn't pleased with it. If you and I don't say something and speak against these things when we see it, who's going to? The people that know and understand God and his heart and the intrinsic value of life because we're made in his image, they're the ones that need to stand up and say, this is murder. This is wickedness. This is wrong. And back in the Old Testament, we find that they were worshiping this god Moloch, which was a, a huge statue, and they would get a heat going in this statue to such a degree where the arms would be glowing red out like this, and they would take their children and sacrifice their children to this glowing statue, and the child would be burnt alive right there in front of them. God said, that had never even entered my mind. The thing that bothers me so much, I just woke up the other morning and I wasn't even thinking. Just, I woke up before an alarm went off and I was laying in bed. And I'm not just trying to be graphic for graphic's sake. It just hit me all the more. I thought when we've had, you know, we have five children. And fathers, you know if you've been there when your wife's given birth, that baby comes out, it's very much alive. The joy that comes in your heart when you can pick up this little child and they're so fragile and you feel like you got to protect this one. They can't even lift their heads up and they're so small and you're looking at them. And then I thought what just happened here in New York state, they would rip that baby in pieces 30 seconds before I'd hold it. And they would say that that's not murder. The Bible says, be angry and sin not. That's an imperative command. That's not a provision for our, you know, susceptibilities to anger. You and I should be enraged that this monstrosity is taking place. You and I should be speaking with people and holding them accountable. And if it doesn't happen in legislation, holding these people accountable before God, hanging their conscience up before God and saying, you're responsible for the murder of any of these babies that you have either sanctioned or done yourself and you're going to have to answer to the shed blood of every single one of those. You may get away with it here on earth, but when you stand before God, you're going to hang your head in shame and you're going to burn in flames forever and ever, except you repent. That sounds pretty hard, but people need to hear that. We're in such a soft day right now where people don't care. And if that is enough, then we have the, uh, the idea of mercy killing or assisted suicide. They're saying that this is a self-choice. Somebody's terminally ill. They're like, you know what? I can't even take this anymore. Just give me the pill so that I can just pass out. My life's done. I've lived a good life. That's not in yours or my hand to decide. Sometimes God uses suffering to get people to where they need to be with him. And if we cut that road out of the way, we may damn people's souls to hell. And if we're Christian, we would love them enough to let them suffer, even though we hate to see them go through pain and grief. We want them to be eternally in heaven with God forever, most out of any other thing. And so there's the self-choice, but also if you go into the Netherlands, they have where another person can choose for the incompetent. Who's the incompetent? A handicapped infant 
Somebody who's terminally ill. This means a family member can say, you know what? They're so terminally ill at this point. Just, just do away with them. They're not, they're not even having a good time anymore. Somebody else can choose. Comatose patients. Now, I'm not talking about people on life support. I don't think that that's, that's anything. If somebody's on life support and you pull the plug, that's not murder. You're leaving them up to a natural cause. And before that, a machine is the thing that's moving them mechanically. But if you're saying, we're going to let God have his way here, there's nothing evil about that. We're talking about physically inducing that this person to die because they're in a coma. Or those with severe depression even in, in the Netherlands. This is legal. And you think, well, thank God that's in the Netherlands and not here. Do you know that is the argument in our particular day? This country's doing that and it's working well. We should do it. This country's doing it. We should do it. And they're adopting everything from out there. It's not going to be too long. If Christians don't stand up, if we don't get on our face and pray, it's not going to be too long before this is coming in on our side here. Where it's going to be okay for you and I to choose whether or not somebody else can live based on what we think is best. You and I don't have enough knowledge to make a choice like that. We need to leave that alone. In Deuteronomy 32, 39, we read, See now that I, even I am he, this is God speaking, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. God has reserved the right to life and death in his own sovereign hand. He is the king of kings. Nobody can make the choice but God himself. He breathed the breath of life into you and I as dust, and he can take it away. But we, if we do it, are under the awful judgment of God. The other thought on the assault of the image of God is suicide. And there are some biblical incidents. Abimelech, he had done that. A lady had cast a stone out over the wall when they were having a battle. It cracked his head, and he said, kill me now, thrust the sword in, lest anybody say that a lady did this to me. And so he ended his life because of his pride. He could have lived, I don't know. But he didn't want it to go down in history that he died because a lady did it. Saul, we all know the story of Saul, I think, who was raised up to be the king for Israel. And he so backslid and turned his back on God that in the last days when he's in the midst of a battle, he gets shot with an arrow from the enemy and he says to his armor bearer, thrust me through with the sword, that's it. I'd rather die like this than to say that the enemy army killed me. And you and I can maybe look at that in war history and think that's honorable, but it's not honorable in the sight of God. There's nothing okay about that. That's just blatant pride against the sovereign will of God. We have no right to take our lives into our hands like that. And so there Saul passes off into eternity. Zimri, another man, he saw that the city was taken, that he went into the palace of the king's house. He burnt the king's house over him with fire and he died just out of grief of an enemy taking over the city. Also Ahithophel, this was a man who used to be David's right hand man. And he turned on David and went with Absalom. And then he started working in conspiracy against David. And then David gets a report that Ahithophel is working in conspiracy. David's walking barefoot up a hill away from the city of Jerusalem. And he says this prayer to God. Oh, God, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. And that very thing happened. And when Ahithophel saw that he wasn't going to go the way he thought he was going to go, says he went home, put his house in order, and then killed himself. Judas, the son of perdition, we find. He had done the same thing. I betrayed innocent blood into the hands of wicked men. Speaking about Jesus Christ, I sold him for 30 pieces of silver. We see the remorse of his heart, but no repentance. He never went to God. He could have. 
But because he was so filled with grief, he ended his life. Now, why is suicide even a thought to people? I would think some of it's because of depression. And depression generally can be a feeling of utter hopelessness, a feeling of no sense of worth, no sense of dignity, no nothing. And I can't say that that's always the case. John Wesley had spoken a lot about different things uh, to do with depression. I've got a bunch of quotes here, but for the sake of time, I'm going to have to leave them out. He had talked about sometimes having a disordered body, something physically wrong with us that then made us to sink into low spirits. It didn't have a spiritual cause. It was just there was something physically wrong with somebody. And because of that, they were in such a state of depression, looked like they had no hope and could hardly move along in life. And he said that that's consistent with Christian faith. He said that doesn't mean that that took away somebody's saving faith any more than it would mean that if you ate some kind of spoiled food and then you got sick from it. When your body, your soul, your spirit, it's also intricately connected that those things can happen. And so overcoming depression as a Christian, it cannot be done in our own strength. Sometimes it can be because of a constitutional cause. It can't be done in our own strength, but we as Christians should acknowledge if there is depression there, acknowledge it and seek the Lord. Lord, help me. I know that, that something's not right here. And you know, he can help you to realize if there's a physical cause that needs to be taken care of. He can help you to know if it's just an emotional cause, some pattern of thinking that you've had for years that has so, so molded and shaped you in such a way that brings you into such a state of depression just because you're not thinking right. God wants to help people through that because he looks at you and sees tremendous worth in you and a dignity there. John Wesley did say that though it didn't have a spiritual cause of this depression, we still should do what we can. Eat right, exercise, rest well, kick habits that are detrimental to you. Caffeine, he said, was a huge problem. It shot people's nerves sometimes and he had witnessed it causing problems with people. Luther, he knew about depression. depression. He himself had gone through depression and he had pastored people. Martin Luther, he said, seek merriment with believers. In other, in other words, go be around other believers and have a good time, wholesome good time. Play some games with them, joke around, etc. Why would he say that? Because he realized that there was a physical cause there and there was need to divert attention to get somebody up out of the hole. Why would all these things be in the heart of a pastor like John Wesley or Martin Luther? Because suicide is never an option. Because life is too sacred to end except God ends it. And so John Wesley saw that there was a soul in there. That there was one who bore the image of God and he wanted to help them to find that they did have that sense of worth and that sense of dignity to keep on living. It's worth it. Martin Luther the same because life is sacred. The atheistic or humanistic worldview sees people as autonomous or self-ruling biological entities whose life's purpose is pleasure and whose end is complete extinction. This view logically results in a self-centered hedonism that sees life as utilitarian, which means valuable only for what it offers, and sees little value in suffering. The logical conclusion of this perspective, generally denied by most people who hold this view, is nihilism. Is this all there is? 
According to this perspective, life should not be continued unless it is a wanted life. Suffering is an unmitigated negative. Thus, there are some lives that are not worth living. That's the society you and I live in right now. This is the assault on the image of God. And the, and the Bible says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. But God looks at it differently. The preciousness of life in God's sight. God loves every soul, for he sees his image in them. There's no partiality here. God doesn't look at some and value some more than another. All of them are of infinite value to him because they stamp, they're stamped with his own image. Think about a painting, a painting of Claude Monet or a painting of Van Gogh. And it's some newly found piece that has never been discovered before in, your, in anybody's lifetime. It's just been on earth and it's here. What kind of a worth does that painting have? What kind of distance would people travel to see something like that? And I just want to tell you that we are God's unique masterpiece. We are a rare and a precious treasure in the sight of God. He thinks of us like people would of a painting that's just been unearthed. And they put high price and value on it, except infinity and beyond that, God thinks about a human soul. We read, but now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I'll be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. That's the heart and care of God. I will pull you through sufferings rather than end your life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's how much value God puts on you. He sent his own son to die in your stead. To the disobedient outcast people that are under judgment, as he said in the Old Testament, so the word stands today in Jeremiah 31, 3. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Romans 5, 8. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Suffering is a part of the sovereign rule of God. We even see in the scriptures, as I alluded to before. And God still sees that these souls are precious. He, we're told if you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? That's the loving hand of God, even through the affliction. For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we, may, that we might be partakers of his holiness. God says the trials of life are, are carefully calculated to help us to be partakers of the holiness of God. You and I start to learn things about Jesus and his person that we never would have known except we went through the trials and the hardships and the sufferings. But in a utilitarian society, what's, what's the good in all this? It's just like life's not worth living. Might as well stop. God sees a different picture. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. God's looking for the thereafter. And he's trying to get our sights looking on the thereafter. 
so that we don't just look at this dismal place that we live and think it's not worth living, but realizing that all it's doing is ripping the chaff off of my own soul so that when I get up into the glories of heaven, there's going to be such a weight of glory that falls upon me because I made it through every trial, through every temptation, and I did not escape this life until God himself took me out. And when I get there, I'll be ever thankful. The rejoicing will abound out of my soul. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all shadows will erase. So run the race until you see him. But there, are, there is the judgment of God that comes down on those that do take the life. We find there's judgment towards any that would take their own life. There's judgments toward those that would take the lives of another through abortion. And I do want to tell you, there may be some cases of mental illness that take place in somebody's own mind where they take their own life. You and I have to stay out of there. I don't have wisdom enough to figure that out. I don't see inside the heart of an individual. I don't know what kind of responsibility is laid on them because if their mind is gone, the responsibility is different. And I have to leave that judgment in God's sight. But I need to emphatically state, children, listen. I need to emphatically state to you that taking your own life is not acceptable. And adults, no matter how hard it gets, taking your life is not even an option. But God is merciful and just and he will do what's right depending on what has happened with any soul that we may have known that has passed on and has gone through something like that, leave it with God. There are times where it says that the enemies came in and they ripped up the children in the womb, which is very much like abortion, and judgment came down on the nations. We find that blood for blood, like we're told there. And when blood's polluted a land, God brought judgment in to shed blood on behalf of the already shed blood as vengeance. And God did that. And I just want to tell you, that will come. That will come here to the United States. It will come to the souls that have gone forward to it. And a Christian has no business voting for somebody who condones such murder. We have no business doing it. That's where you and I can have sway. So in conclusion, with contentment, with contentment or happiness as the standard, some lives are deemed to have such low quality that it is reasonable to prefer, prefer death. This is the antithesis of the sanctity of life ethic, which maintains that every life created in the image of God has intrinsic God-given value that is not reduced by circumstances. Paul teaches us, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. All men are created equal. We should see the stamp of the divine in one another, even here in the church. We should see that each one of us is made in the image of God. It'll change how we relate with one another. We should hold it in sacred awe to realize that the only reason that you and I are even alive or sitting in this place is because God's breathed his life into us and he gave us a living soul. And then he looks upon us and says, we're very good. We're his creation. He also sees that the fall has ruined us and he sent his own son to restore us and bring us back to what he originally intended. He loves every single soul. 
And we need to have that sacred awe. We all have the same maker. We all have the same breath. We all have the same probation. We all have the same privilege, that is of redemption. We all have the same death and we all have to face the same judgment. We're all on one even score before God, a life given to us. So how do we know this love of God for us? I just want to read this, which is called the Father's Love Letter. So it's a bunch of scriptures strung together. It says, you may not know me, my child, but I know everything about you. I know when you sit down and when you rise up. I'm familiar with all your ways. Even the very hairs on your head are numbered, for you were made in my image. In me you live and move and have your being, for you are my offspring. I knew you even before you were conceived. I chose you when I planned creation. You are not a mistake, for all your days are written in my book. I determine the exact time of your birth and where you would live. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I knit you together in your mother's womb and brought you forth on the day you were born. I have been misrepresented by those who don't know me. I'm not distant and angry, but I am the complete expression of love. And it is my desire to lavish my love on you simply because you are my child and I am your father. I offer you more than your earthly father ever could, for I'm the perfect father. Every good gift that you receive comes from my hand, for I'm your provider and I meet all your needs. My plan for your future has always been filled with hope because I love you with an everlasting love. My thoughts toward you are countless as the sand on the seashore, and I rejoice over you with singing. I will never stop doing good to you, for you are my treasured possession. I desire to establish you with all my heart and all my soul, and I want to show you great and marvelous things. If you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. Delight in me, and I will give you the desires of your heart, for it is I who gave you those desires. I am able to do more for you than you could possibly imagine, for I am your greatest encourager. I am also the Father who comforts you in all your troubles. When you're brokenhearted, I'm close to you. As a shepherd carries a lamb, I have carried you close to my heart. One day I will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and I'll take away all the pain you have suffered on this earth. I am your Father, and I love you even as I love my son Jesus. For in Jesus, my love for you is revealed. He is the exact representation of my being. He, can he can came to demonstrate that I am for you, not against you, and to tell you that I'm not counting your sins. Jesus died so that you and I could be reconciled. His death was the ultimate expression of my love for you. I gave up everything I loved that I might gain your love. If you receive the gift of my son Jesus, you receive me, and nothing will ever separate you from my love again. Come home, and I'll throw the biggest party heaven has ever seen. I have always been father and will always be father. My question is, will you be my child? I'm waiting for you. Love God. That's what God thinks. They're just a bunch of scriptures strung together. What God thinks of humanity. What God thinks of those people that seek him and find him with all their hearts. So we first need to be assured of his own love in our own souls to be able to understand how he loves all the other souls of humanity around. What do we do when we know this love? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Open thy mouth for the dumb in the cause of all such as are appointed to destruction. That is what Proverbs 31, eight says. So what does that mean to you and I? You and I have got to speak for the unborn. 
You and I have got to speak for those that are in disabilities and such things and assisted suicides and mercy killing. You and I have to speak with those that are depressed and help them to see the worth of life. You and I need to stand up against the present evils in this day, being assured of the love of God in my own soul and how he feels about me and speaking on behalf of those that can't speak for themselves. That's what you and I as Christians need to do. Oh, the worth of one life. Jesus said, I left 99 sheep to go out and find the one lost. The worth of one life. The worth of one sacred life in the sight of God. The preciousness of one soul. This is what God thinks. May God help us, you and I, to not be just pushed along in this particular society with all of its talking points, thinking that we've got to conform to all these things. Let's you and I instead stand up and say, this is what God thinks. This is what God says. I know the love of God in my own soul. I found worth in Jesus Christ. I found salvation in his name. Please don't take a life. Don't take your life. Don't take the unborn's life. God looks at these ones as precious souls. And you and I need to be the voice and the mouth for this society that we live in and for those that can't speak for themselves. May God help us each one.